And so it really comes down to human relationships. Mm. Like it's really the orchestra and people. Uh, people who can support the art form, people who want to hear the art form. And so it's really just about bringing the people in. Uh, we basically completely threw out everything we'd done before and started over. That was Danny Beckley, and this is Guild Stories. Welcome to Guild Stories, the podcast where every person has a story, and it's the stories that connect us all. I am Justin Rickliffs, founder and CEO of Guild Content. We are so grateful you're here. This podcast is a place where we'll explore the stories of hustlers, dreamers, and doers who are going for it by pursuing meaningful work and living life with purpose. Welcome to Guild Stories. Welcome back to Guild Stories. I'm joined today by Danny Beckley. Danny is the executive director of the Kansas City Symphony, and he has uh, graciously driven up to Liberty. First time ever in the Northland for you, right? This is my first trip to Liberty, and uh, and I'm a little embarrassed by that, but you know, COVID. And I was here for six months before COVID, so I never had time. That's right. That's right. Um, well, it's a pleasure to have you. We're grateful to you and, and obviously AJ helping us get coordinated here. Um, know you're a busy guy and you got a lot going on, um, but I'm I'm really thrilled and thankful for this uh, budding friendship we have and relationship that uh, started actually with our mutual friend Andre Davis at Built Interior and his team. Um, and it was fun for us to get intro to you through that project and um, the, the ways that you now have a new home to call from a from an office and, a, and an administrative perspective. So before we get into all that, I would love to just, yeah, jump us into, you know, your quick, if you were meeting somebody at a cocktail party or at the symphony, how do you introduce yourself? Um, what it, Give us a quick kind of roll of, of, uh, of, of your job at KC Symphony, and then we'll kind of wind you back all the way to the beginning. Yeah, so I'm the executive director of the Kansas City Symphony. Uh, the symphony is one of America's 30 largest symphony orchestras. And so we're like the Royals are to baseball. Yeah. So a major symphony orchestra. I'm really honored to be here. I've been here. I just started before COVID. Mm. Uh, and Great I, timing. Uh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my, my predecessor, uh, Frank Byrne, uh, he was here for uh, 19, 20 years, I think. And, and he... Um, I, somehow he saw it coming, and he just darted for the door <laughs> right before. And so I, I admire his foresight. But uh, there's no place I'd rather be. Uh, this has been a really great city uh, to be in, a really great community to be a part of. And uh, so my role at the Kansas City Symphony is really the chief executive. So mm-hmm. I, I oversee all of the mechanics that take to, to make a major symphony orchestra work. We have 80 musicians, um, full-time salaried people. This isn't like a second job for them. Mm-hmm. This is their 80 main. full time. Okay. 80 full wow. time. Yeah. Wow. And then we have about 35 staff mm. uh, that, that, that support the operation mm. and, uh, and do everything from making the, making the trains run on time to promoting mm. the concerts to raising money for us because mm. we are a nonprofit organization. Mm-hmm. So it's wow. really quite a, quite a broad responsibility. Uh, and, and I have some terrific people that I get to work with every day. Mm. That's amazing. Um, thank you for setting the stage. It, uh, if you wouldn't mind, where did kind of wind us back? Where did you grow up? How did you get, you know, obviously we all, like we all have, there 
they're long meandering stories with lots of twists and turns. So I'd love to, yeah, just maybe hit some of the, the pillar signposts in the rearview mirror, if you wouldn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine may be the most meandering story you've heard. I don't uh, know. It's, uh, <laughs> so I, I grew up in a very uh, rural area, a uh, colonial area of Virginia. Interesting. And so I, I wasn't exposed to symphony orchestras except what I heard on, mm. you know, the record player and, and on the radio. Mm. Uh, and uh, growing up, I was just a big fan of music. My dad was a trombonist. Uh, and uh, and I just just hearing him from the, my earliest memory, hearing him warm up on the trombone, I was like, that is what I want to do. That's awesome. And he was kind of into the jazz rock fusion thing. He had a band in high school where, you know, kind of a Chicago a sort of inspired yeah. band. Yeah. And, and so that's what I grew up around. And so going through school, I had a band director that was phenomenal mm. uh, and, and just really encouraged me to, to do everything I could in music. Mm. Uh, and so the end all be all for me was the high school band director. Mm. Like he was the maestro of the community uh, where I lived. And totally. so that's what I wanted to do. Unknown call. So I went through and I did my music education degree and I got in and I, I got my first teaching job and oh my goodness, is it hard? <laughs> and uh, it takes a really special person to yep. be a, a teacher. Absolutely. Uh, I am not that person. <laughs> and, and I learned that about two years in and, uh, and, and decided I wanted to, to do something else. Uh, all the while, I was mm. getting more exposure to music and understanding beyond my community where I grew up mm. what it was. And, and I heard my first live symphony orchestra mm. uh, when I was in college. And so being a fairly late bloomer, in the symphonic world is, is a little bit out of the ordinary. Uh, you know, most of the musicians that we work with, they've been, you know, they, they were born with a bow in their hand. Right, <laughs> right. And they've been, they've just been spending their entire lives on this. For me, I came to it a little later. Mm. Um, my band director that I referenced, you know, he said, I said, I want to be a, a jazz trombonist. Mm. Like, That's what I want to do. And I'll, I'll teach music too, but I want to be a jazz trombonist. And so he said, Danny, if you want to be a really good jazz musician, you need to be a really good classical musician first. Mm. And so I followed his advice. I just forgot to go back to jazz. <laughs> and so I was doing the classical schooling and everything else. And, and after a couple of years of actual teaching, mm. I decided to go after my performance degree and actually make a run of it as a professional trombonist. Uh, and so I did that. I went to Northwestern, Crazy. Um, which is like brass mecca. Uh, if, if you want to be a trombonist or a trumpet player or anything else, it's one of the places you go mm. is, is is to study in Chicago with, with a legendary brass section of the Chicago Symphony. Mm. And so I did that, and it was just uh, just a dream. And then I went to the southeast. Um, my wife at the time, she lived in uh, – her family was in Charleston. She, she stayed mm. down there while I went to school, and, and then I came to Charleston and joined the family and mm. uh, and then started a business. And I started a business in software because really? all of this was around the dot-com boom. Yeah. And so yeah, yeah. I was supporting the music habit through uh, websites and, okay. and, and work, work on the Internet um, because that was just coming into being. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody had a website at the time. It was a very mm. fertile uh, mm. industry. Mm. This and, like early 2000s-ish? Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like 99, 2000-ish. I, I okay. was getting started. So. Love it. Um, so I did that, started several little companies, and then uh, partnered with a fellow in Virginia who was also a trombone player. Interesting. Uh, and, and, and he and I built a company and, and, and had a pretty, pretty good success with it. That's awesome. Um, but all the while, uh, as I'm running this sort of web services firm, mm. uh, I'm also keeping my toe in the trombone mm. and, and, and practicing and, and taking auditions and you know, playing with orchestras all over the southeast. 
And I just really, really wanted to be immersed in this world, the classical music world mm. at the time. Mm. And so I was on the board of the Charleston Symphony Orchestra, where I was also playing as a musician. Uh, and um, they were about to basically just fold up shop. It was not a good situation. Mm. They were out of money. Their operation was really mismanaged. It was mm. just a mess. Mm. And so they asked me to come in and, and uh, basically for, serve as the executive director there. Mm. And I had to consider that because that had ramifications for my company, for my family. Um, but I ultimately, I took the plunge. Uh, and did that, and it's uh, l- looking back on it, it was a little bit of insanity uh, to, to <laughs> I go know the feeling. A, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you do. And and so to, to to have a company that you build up over a period of years, yeah. and for that company to be very successful mm. and pretty much you know bomb proof, mm. you know, with recurring revenue and all the mm. things that you look for, um, it, it was it was a bit nuts mm. to to jump off of that cliff into mm. this world, mm. um, but I did. And, uh, and I, I feel like I, I made a difference. Yeah. And, and, and help me understand more the why that you did. Like, it, was, it, is, was it to be closer? I mean, you mentioned um, kind of this, the, the love of it and the passion of it and the desire to be closer to it. Um, you, you, you made that decision consciously and logically and with emotion clearly as well. But um, what, what drew you to, yep, I'm doing that? Yeah. You know, the idea that all of my friends would be out of work pretty soon mm. if somebody didn't do something. Mm. It, it was really, uh, it, it was a calling mm. of sorts to, you know, a, a very clear purpose that, hey, I know how to fix this and and, and nobody else is stepping up to the plate. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm sure you've had that mm. before, Some something in your life that, that you feel called to make, yep. to make a step. Uh, and, and so I, I felt that very clearly at that point in time. And it wasn't logical at all, um, but it was something that I felt like I needed to do. That's awesome. So it was, you know, out of, out of love for my friends, out of love for the art, um, and and out of uh, a, a confidence that I, I knew that this could be better. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Thanks for sharing. So once you did jump off that cliff and, and into those waters, um, what did that journey look like in terms of, uh, I don't, I really don't know the story, like stabilizing the operation. What happened? Like what, what did your involvement there kind of, what were some of the outcomes? <laughs> we, what we really had was a revenue problem mm. that was being tried to be fixed through expense mm. reductions. Mm. And, and you know, the old saying, you can't cut your way to success. Uh, symphony orchestras have mm. sort of teetered on, on, the brink of insolvency for a long time. It's one of our longest standing traditions <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. It, it's a hard, it's a hard yeah. operation to run. You know, the Kansas city symphony, for example, we have to employ, you know, well over a hundred people to make this thing work. Mm. Um, and that's it's very expensive. That's a big it's number. It's a big number. Yeah. You don't have economy uh, of, of technological innovation. Mm. Uh, it, mm. it, it takes the same number of violinists to play a Beethoven symphony as it did back then. In mm. fact, it might take more mm. because our tastes have gone sort of bigger mm. uh, with, with you know, Tchaikovsky and, and the 20th century music and everything else kind of opened our eyes to what a symphony orchestra can do. Mm. And so it, it, we, we like to play earlier music with maybe larger orchestras <laughs> right. than, than we, we would have uh, anyway. So anyway, we have, have to have a lot of people on staff. So that is hugely expensive. The financial of this you know we play for an audience of 1600 people well we would have to play probably i don't know five or six hundred concerts a year to make that actually economically viable uh, at a price point that people could actually stomach Mm -hmm. 
And so we can't physically play that many concerts a year. And so we either play for much larger houses, which would be challenging because the acoustics would be dreadful. <laughs> uh, we would have to find the audience uh, or, or we have to uh, operate as a nonprofit. And so as a nonprofit entity, we have to raise about 60% of our budget. Wow. And so that's, that's really where it gets tricky. Yes. And so that's why, uh, as, as orchestras, you know, we want to preserve this art and we want to advance this art. It's mm. not a museum piece. It's mm. a living, breathing art form. Mm. And so we need to advance it in a way uh, that, that is sustainable mm. for us. Mm. And so it, it's a really interesting business to be in. Mm. So when, when th- with that mindset, I imagine the Charleston piece, that's, there, I'm sure there's lots, lots more nuance and context to it, but generally speaking, they, they didn't get that. That's why they were floundering and on the brink of going away to, to, uh, so how did, how did that story unfold in Charleston? And then, um, I think you had to stop along the way before KC after Charleston, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so going back, uh, back into Charleston. So the orchestra was spending far more money Mm. than it was bringing in. Mm. They were trying to reduce that money yep. by basically making the orchestra smaller, mm. which would have a counter lessens impact. Yeah, right. It yeah, lessens right. the impact. It makes the music less enjoyable to listen yep. to. Everything else, and and you you slowly spin your way to death. Mm. And so, <laughs> and, and so it was really a revenue problem where we needed to fill our halls. First mm. of all, we need to bring more people in to hear our music, and then we need to raise more money to support our music. Mm. And so it really comes down to human relationships. Mm. Like it's really the orchestra and people. Uh, people who can support the art form, people who want to hear the art form. And so it's really just about bringing the people in. So we did some marketing initiatives to do that. Uh, we basically completely threw out everything we'd done before and started mm. over mm. Uh, with, with some pricing strategies and some promotional strategies that really drive frequency of attendance. For us, that's the gold standard. We love it when people come to one of our concerts. We love it much more when people come to three of our concerts. That's right. Or more, and, yep. and so once once you've come a few times, I've kind of got my hooks in you, mm-hmm. and uh, and and for us in the orchestra management field, it's really that that's what we strive towards. Because if we build that relationship with someone who really becomes a lover of our art, they will support us and and provide us fuel to to be able to continue serving. So it's really sort of this virtuous cycle that we try to build. Yeah, it's amazing. As you're talking, I've got um, our my my good friend Corey Shear in my mind who. He teaches on the structure of trust and trust trust building in the sense of um, certainly the relational indep- like uh, individual exchange of trust and building of trust, but but more so the corporate and the and the um, uh, organizational structure of how to build trust and the the gold standard of course always is loyalty. You want loyalty. You want the repeating, recurring revenue, the hooks in you multiple concert goer right um but that comes through it's trust first then value then loyalty and lots of times we as marketers or as individuals or or even just thinking about the ways to grow revenue and avoid that spiral to death as you uh, i love that phrase um the lots of times the focus is on value price offers bundles whatever else and it's like man if we don't get that and you nailed it like if we don't get that trust piece first if we don't establish that human connection first with ways that are meaningful and beneficial to the 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 consumer the the customer the client then loyalty never comes (laughs) if the trust piece is eroded 
Um, so anyway, as you were saying that, I'm like, man, of course, like it was a real life example of how that, um, how that plays out. If you don't establish that human connection, that deep trust first, the loyalties will never come. Yeah. And, and the trust piece is so important because most of our audience doesn't know most of the repertoire. They trust us to, to give them an, an experience that they can't get anywhere else. And so it really comes down to, I don't need to be educated to go to a symphony orchestra concert. I just need to trust that whatever you're going to serve me is going to be, have purpose in my life. Yeah. Like I'm going, it's going to be well worth my time to sit in that concert. Mm. And so trust is paramount. Mm. And, and so, yeah, I, I love how you put that in terms of the loyalty. Uh, loyalty is a byproduct. Of That's that. right. And value, value is secondary. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It needs to be affordable and everything else they need to feel like they get what they're paid for but that's that's like the bottom rung that's right like there's another level on top of that Mm. that you need to build Mm. that's awesome um so how long like what was the charleston experience and then how'd you why why and how did you leave charleston south carolina (laughs) yeah right (laughs) i left charleston south carolina to go to indianapolis and uh Mm. it's funny when i got there people were like oh you're from charleston you moved to indianapolis why? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's Char- awesome. Charleston was a great, a great time. Uh, I, I was, I was in Charleston for about eight years. I was okay. running the orchestra for about two years. Uh, and, uh, it, it was in, in a very short amount of time, we were able to turn the organization completely around. Awesome. Uh, ever since they've been much better shaped. The guy who followed me, uh, was the formal principal trumpet of the orchestra. And I brought him under, you know, into the organization sort of as an operations person mm. to help just get the concerts to happen. And he uh, he developed quite an aptitude for leadership himself. And now he's been running the orchestra, and it's been it's just been a great a great shape. I left Charleston to go to something bigger. Um, you know, it's uh, Charleston was a sort of a minor league team, and I wanted to go to the majors, mm. <laughs> as mm. it were. And uh, mm. and so Indianapolis called, and uh, and and I. I responded. Mm. It was an opportunity to do mm. things that I, I mean, a budget size, 10 times what I had in Charleston. Jeez. Um, and, and, you know, they had a huge, huge holiday program that draw, you know, millions of dollars, uh, mm. you know, ten, tens of thousands of people, uh, a big summer program that was outdoors that, you know, 100,000 people a summer sort of thing where you could Crazy. really flex your muscles in that way. And then the opportunity to work with all these guest artists and, mm. and, and have so many classical concerts. And, and mm. what I learned uh, shortly after I started in Indianapolis was my love of uh, pops. Uh, orchestra pops is something uh, that's sort of not really widely understood because it's been done poorly for so long by so many. <laughs> mm. And I went to Indianapolis and I heard what an orchestra can do. I heard an orchestra that can actually swing. Mm. And that was... That was foreign to me. Mm. I, I never realized that. And the pops conductor in Indianapolis, who's a dear friend and I, I love him, uh, is uh, Jack Everly. He's the same fellow that does the National Fourth of July oh, okay. uh, program on PBS. Oh, at, interesting. At, in, in Washington D.C. Mm. and uh, the Memorial Day program and some other stuff, and plays, play, you know, leads orchestras all over the country. Mm. But I heard one of his programs and just realized that this is a whole other art form, symphonic art. Uh, as applied to things like Broadway musicals and as applied to things like the Great American Songbook is completely transformative. So so I realized that Pops is this whole other area uh, that, that should be explored. Too often, orchestras just have Pops concerts as a way to bring people in the door. It's a way to sell a ticket. Mm. Uh, you do generate some, some philanthropic dollars with it and build some relationships that way. 
but it's not really seen as core. Mm. And, and and what I learned in Indianapolis was that popular music is just as important as classical music. It, it's like this, this symphony orchestra is an instrument, and it can be applied to any number of things. And, awesome. and for us to stop at Beethoven and Brahms and even Mahler is a disservice to this mm. whole world that we've created in America, especially of American popular music. Mm. And when you put an 80-piece symphony orchestra behind whatever, and you really spend time and energy to write really good charts that actually utilize the symphony orchestra for what it is, which is a, uh, an unrivaled instrument, mm. it's incredible mm. what can be achieved. Mm. And so anyway, too often, cool. too often orchestras have popular programs that are sort of like, they write them off, they don't spend any money on them, they, they don't invest anything in the charts, you know, they, they just play whole notes behind whoever the singer is, and it's just awful. <laughs> and, and so Indianapolis really fostered my love of that uh, and, of course, opened my eyes to a whole lot of other ways that Big Symphony Orchestra is trying that I wouldn't have seen in Charleston. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. Um, so similar, I'm assuming, similar journey in, in Indianapolis in terms of stable uh, growth. Like how, how did you kind of determine your own fulfillment there, your own success there, and then what led you to KC? So in Indianapolis, I was the general manager, which is, okay. you know, I was in charge of, you know, making the trains run on time. Got I, it. I didn't have so much responsibility for revenue, though I did mm. have some mm. uh, working with the marketing department, particularly mm. on our summer series out there, but, uh, and trying to grow that. Mm. Um, but, but for me, success was really, was really optimizing the, the operation mm. to support the art, uh, trying to fix things that were, that were broken. I mean, similar yeah. Similar role to what I had in Charleston, except Charleston was a little bit broader. Yeah. It was a much wider role, but a smaller organization. Mm-hmm. And, and so here I had to oversee, you know, facilities. We owned real estate that, that I had to supervise and, you know, construction projects and all that kind right. of stuff. And uh, we started a food and beverage business within our hall that was transformational in terms of the revenue it produced. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so uh, it was it was just really, uh, really a fun place to be. And I was able to shake things up pretty, pretty good there. So <laughs> I, I enjoyed Indianapolis. That's great. How long were you there in total? I was there for five and a half years. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then at some point, how did KC get on the radar? Oh boy. How did KC get on the radar? So in 2014, mm. uh, so I'll back up. Mm. So the pops programming I was talking about in Indianapolis, we actually developed shows and they were pretty expensive to develop. So somebody at some point had the bright idea of taking those shows, develop them in, in-house, and then ship them around the country to Got other it. orchestras Got it. and have those orchestras perform them and pay us. Mm-hmm. And so thereby sort of Smart. sharing the load a little bit. So I was overseeing that part of it. And, and so I traveled to Kansas City with, with Jack Everly and, and the Pops crew uh, to, to do, uh, it was a magic show. Mm-hmm. So we had magicians and, and music to go with the music, musicians uh, in, in concert. And so I wanted to see the uh, the Kaufman Center and hear the orchestra because I'd never been here and I'd heard amazing things about the Kaufman Center. And so I wanted to, to come. And so I, I accompanied the, the Pops team here and heard the show. And just, I, I remember flying into Kansas City my first time and seeing the Kaufman Center from the air. Uh, <laughs> just yeah. being blown away. I was like, oh my yeah. goodness, that's yeah. it. And, uh, and then coming into the hall and hearing the orchestra and, and seeing how, how Jack worked with another orchestra that wasn't the Indianapolis Symphony, mm-hmm. it was really instructive to me in a number of ways. And so I, uh, I just really enjoyed it. I met the people here. I met Frank Byrne, my predecessor, and, and we, we started a really terrific professional relationship 
uh, out of that visit. You never know what will come yeah. out of these visits. And and for me, you know, a job eventually came out of that <laughs> visit because I, it sort of, it, it sunk Kansas City's hooks in me and, mm. and I, I realized mm. what a cool town this is. Mm. Um, and uh, so when Frank announced his retirement, I remember sending an email email saying you know hey congratulations on your retirement i really feel sorry for the guy who's gonna you know the person who's gonna follow follow you you. (laughs) Uh, because he had a great track record i mean Mm. just really Mm. advanced this orchestra a long way never knowing that it would be that it would be me Mm. and and so the Mm. the symphony reached out to me through a recruiter Mm. and uh and and made a case Mm. (laughs) and i went through the process and i I eventually accepted the job and Mm. uh and and left indy and that was a hard decision Mm. but um but certainly the opportunity to, to oversee everything, you know, the, the, the revenue side especially is, is a passion of mine. Um, that, that was very alluring, and so I, I accepted. And, and you start six, you moved to KC six months before the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> tell, tell me about that. Tell, well, I, I want to hear about your arrival. Like, what, what, what were pre-pandemic, those first six months? What, like, how did you, um, what was your welcome? What was your... Uh, experience following a strong leader and a successful leader in Frank. And and then how did, you know, I'm, I'm interested personally in how did you approach your priority setting? Like how did you kind of survey the landscape of the horizon and say, Hey, we need to focus on these three things, 12 things, whatever. Yeah. How, how did you um, kind of set your um, agenda, so to speak? Uh, so, so this is an interesting study in, in leadership, I think. Because in my first two orchestras, you know, I came into disastrous situations. Mm. And it was basically a turnaround story. Mm. In Kansas City, I get the job and it's like, don't mess it up. <laughs> keep it on the rails, <laughs> like, actually. <laughs> everything is going fine. Just yeah. keep incrementally, yeah. change things as, as you need to, but just sort of slowly advance advance things forward. It's, you know, things are going fine. Don't, don't, don't rock the boat. <laughs> don't be the guy that screws it up. <laughs> don't be the guy that screws things up. And so I, I came into a very welcoming situation mm. that, boy, this organization is so warm. And uh, the people of Kansas City, the patrons, the donors, I mean, they were so welcoming to me. And so pretty much all of my time before the pandemic, I think, was spent in honeymoon phase. Yeah. You know, you get a new job and everybody really has high hopes for you. That's right. And so they treat you better than you should be treated. They were praising me for things that, you know, good job. It's like... Thanks. I woke up this morning. I appreciate that. Like I didn't do my it. email worked. Right. Yeah, my email worked. You know, it's a good day. I, I would, you know, it, it's it's an interesting thing to come into a position like that. Um, and it's not really, honestly, how I'm wired. And I was a little worried about that because I, I'm wired to come in and fix things, and, and to and to really radically advance things. And so coming into Kansas City, I was like, okay, is this going to be like a a maturation point for me where, where I, you know, now I have to, to take an organization and just, and just run it. Uh, and, and I wasn't real sure how that was going to go. Then COVID came and was like, okay, well now we're back in com- comfortable <laughs> territory. Fix it mode. Yeah, we're in fix it fix mode, it mode again. Mode. Yep. So, um, mm-hmm. so it was, it, it was, it was interesting. I, I moved to Kansas city. My wife and I moved to Kansas city in May mm. of 2019. Okay. I didn't technically start in the job until August. Okay. There was like a transition period with my predecessor. That's a whole other leadership Thing that we could talk about, but um, but uh, but I started the job in in August, and then the pandemic, I guess, was March. Yeah. So whatever yeah. the math is on that, but it's um, it, it was it was interesting because I wasn't really able to to affect much change before the pandemic because I was in honeymoon mode, and I was you know 
I was open. I was learning. Yep. You know, my jaw was on the floor a lot of the time. You, you know, your your soul capacity is what? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was having to learn and understand where the where the needs of the organization really were. Uh, and, and and I was understanding them, but but then the pandemic came, and and so the rest you know the next 18, 19 months were spent in crisis management mode, um, but also trying to to plan for the future and, and realizing then that not everything was as shiny and you know polished as you would think it would be, you know there there were there were things that did need to be addressed, and so I I, I discovered those and. Through the course of the pandemic, we were able to start putting things in place to start planning for those long term. You know, the organization is in good shape relative to other orchestras. Like we're we're probably one of the strongest orchestras in the country, but that's right now. Mm. And and there's things that need to happen in the very near future for us to stay that way. How did you when when it hit the fan right in March of 2020? How did you know you take a a, a beloved, respected but in person uh, experience and the thing shuts down. I mean, quite literally shuts down. Uh, I'm just curious, like how did you navigate with your leadership team culture wise, uh, uh, kind of independent of the like public communication stuff, but like how did you nourish and care for your team? Like what did you, um, how'd you guys have to, how'd you figure that out? I mean, we, we, yeah, we had a much smaller version of it, but. But that's a really insightful question, though, because it's not what everybody talks about and sees on the outside. It's like, how did you manage the patrons? How did you manage, you know, keep the was thing your on the rails? Policy or whatever? Yeah, all, all that stuff. I mean, yes, all that was important. Yeah. But what was really critical was the care and feeding of our staff and musicians. Like, we we went, our musicians, you know, again, a lot of them were born with bows in their hand, uh, and, and they've spent their entire lives that's what they know rehearsing yeah. and practicing for what they do. And now they're in a position where they can't perform. They're not allowed to perform, you know, together because of this disease. Mm. And so it was really difficult for them. Of course. And so for me and and working with our music director, uh, it was really critical that we find a way for people to be able to continue to express themselves. It's like, it's almost suffocating. Mm. You know, it's like, I'm not going to allow you to breathe Mm. for the next However long, and and, and the problem know. was right. we didn't you know. know. Right. You know, that's right. Could it be eight months or eight weeks? Could it be eight months? We we had no idea, and and so there there needed to be a way for our musicians to continue to perform. There needed to be a way for our operations team to to support the performance because you know we all do this because we love it. We don't do it because we have to. Mm. You know, th- this is not a lifestyle line of work. You know, it's evenings and weekends and and nine to five and, and everything else. And, and it's just a really intense job. So everybody who works at the symphony wants to be there, but they want to be there to support this art making. And so when we can't make the art, you know, that, that, that can be downright depressing. So it was, it was difficult. So we, we developed, we developed ways. And, and so what you saw as a member of the public is, is what we developed and it fed our souls to be able to, to perform uh, during this time, our musicians started recording videos on their own. We had our principal flute player, you know, spend a fortune on video gear and learn <laughs> how to edit videos so that he could put content out. Yeah. Um, and, and he would like overdub with himself. So there was something to do there. But it, it, it was a challenging time, uh, culture-wise, and, and nourishing the the team. But but we we navigated. And I, th- I think we did okay. Mm, that's awesome. Um, at some point, that started. Uh, obviously, we're to, to some extent still in it, right? And may, may always be. 
Um, but doors started to open back up. You guys started, you know, um, well, I guess m- maybe my, my specific question is um, the the music, and gosh darn it, I'm blanking on the name now, the, the mobile. Mobile music, music box. Mobile music box. Yeah. Um, that was born during COVID. Did I get that right? Or did oh, yeah. Okay. So, uh, like, tell me about the, again, I think crisis sometimes creates or, or can create wonderful opportunities if we pay attention to it. Um, I think I'm fascinated by your mobile music box concept and the impact um, that it's having in, in the community and and the story I think it's telling um, for the symphony. So so yeah, I guess like walk us into that story. How did how did that get born and, and what what is it? So so there were there were probably three problems we were trying trying to solve during the pandemic, uh, and, and this was pretty early on. You know, number one, the musician Karen Feeding that I talked about and the staff too. You know, we needed something to do that was music making. Like we needed to make music somehow. And the videos, the sort of Brady Bunch style <laughs> videos that you were seeing from musicians all over the country, yep. those were getting really old really quick. Yep. Like yep. it's not making music if you're overdubbing. It's like you, you need to be together, together. in yep. some form or fashion. And so we, we wanted to find a way to do that. That was the first problem. The second problem was we needed to keep stay engaged with our community because however long this thing is going to last, however long it was going to last, we didn't know, but we knew that if we didn't stay in front of our, our community, that we would, we would lose relationships that we've spent decades trying to build. And the third problem that we needed to address was really sort of this lifetime uh, building this patron base for the art. Mm-hmm. And so now we're losing, you know, some period of time loss of momentum which for us is, you know, critical and could sure. be a death blow to a performing arts organization. You know, this whole idea of getting the flywheel moving. Yep, that's right. Um, is, is really important. And, and so getting that, fl- the flywheel was spinning for the symphony uh, for a long time. Mm. And then it comes to a screeching halt because of COVID. And, and so we couldn't really have that. So we had to have some way to restart that flywheel moving again. Otherwise, um, uh, otherwise it would mm. just be an impossible situation when, when the pandemic is over. So... Mm. So those were the three things we were trying to address, mm-hmm. and Mobile Music Box came out of came out of that. And so it was a meeting with our musicians. We were talking, and I remember talking about this because we we met staff and musicians would meet and discuss hours and hours and hours, and uh, brainstorming, try to come up with ideas, brainstorming, trying to come yeah. up with ideas, yeah. trying okay. to figure out how to operate everything okay. else. And so, you know, the the idea came up. I think it came up from our musicians that you know, what if we could go out and perform on the road and take small ensembles. And what if we could perform for every zip code in mm. the Kansas City Metro? Mm. It's like, well, that's a great idea. You know, I'd love to perform for every single zip code in the Kansas City Metro. But the operations side of me was thinking in the back of my mind, I was like, my God, that How in the world? That would be a nightmare. <laughs> I mean, so in normal times, having to figure out, there, there's 145 zip codes in Kansas City, okay. so let's just set the stage there. So that many venues, coordinating with that many venues, what's your, what's your, policy on cleaning and sanitization and and how can we distance and how can we get an audience in and and all of that and i've got a very small team to begin with so it was just like an impossible situation so i, I remember being on a chat we so we're in this meetings over zoom and okay. i remember chatting with our our director of operations at the time and uh, and i was like sketching something out on a napkin like literally on a napkin I was like what if we had like a portable stage like what if we had something that was totally self-contained that we could roll into any given community, play a concert, fold up, go away. Mm. 
and it'd be like really easy. We wouldn't have to depend on any venue. We wouldn't have to depend on anything. It could just be totally off the grid. Mm. And so that's how the music, the mobile music box came to be. It's awesome. And uh, in Indianapolis, you know, I was kind of the scrappy, uh, scrappy one. <laughs> we, we, we were selling tickets to this sort of like, what, what was that? You know, millions of dollars in tickets every summer yeah. uh, out of the trunk of somebody's car. Mm. And it just wasn't working out. And so I was like, why don't we just build a mobile box office that we can pull around? So I, I actually built a mobile box awesome. office trailer. <laughs> in like my physically drive, you built it? Physically. Yeah, okay. I, I, bought a, I bought a utility trailer, and then I tore it off down to the frame, and then I built a, amazing. Built a, 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 a basically a tiny house on top of it. That's amazing. And so I, I, like, I said, well, that worked. You know, surely we could probably build a, a, a portable stage of some sort. This time with a trailer manufacturer, though, because I don't have time. That's awesome. <laughs> I live in Brookside. There's no room. Um, so, so we uh, we got in touch with uh, with a trailer manufacturer that we found in uh, in Elkhart, Indiana, of course, where all the trailers are made. Mm. And, uh, and and yeah, they're yeah, sure, no problem. We can build you build you that. So we we worked with them to customize it and to tweak it and everything else. And and so what came out of that was this was this box that unfolds into a stage, has onboard heat, onboard air, onboard power. Like everything, it's completely off off the grid, awesome. and so literally they can pull that into a to a park or a parking lot, in thirty minutes we can be up and running, mm. and and so that's that was the the vision for Mobile Music Box. Since then, a number of orchestras and performing arts organizations all over the country has copied our idea, mm. which which you know it's a flattery. <laughs> <laughs> They're paying tribute. Yeah, pay, paying tribute. I, I wish there was an IP on it, that's but right. that's, that's that's right. not how it goes. Um, but um. But, uh, you know, we're, we're really proud to, to be the first uh, out there with, with this. And, and so we launched our mobile music box in uh, September of 2020. Mm. Uh, so, what, six months into the pandemic. Mm. Uh, and that just opened up the whole world to us. And it, it took the handcuffs off. And now we could perform again. Mm. And so we just went nuts with it. We performed probably, I think we did 15 concerts a week with this 15 thing. 15 a week? 15 a week. Holy smokes. Yeah, yeah. And the vision for this, you know, holy smokes! I had an uh, an architect. We were working with Helix on our yeah. new on our new building, and I asked them to help me out with an artist rendering, so I could actually raise money for this nutty idea. <laughs> and and, uh, and and so they did. And I said, you know, put put some people walking by, maybe somebody walking their dog, maybe a couple of people sitting on chairs, some somebody on a blanket, you know, just a couple dozen mm-hmm. people maybe. Mm-hmm. Had no idea what this thing would actually do. And I figured if we perform frequently enough, you know, we're going to get our presence out there. People will know us. It'll, it'll be familiar to people. Uh, and, and so when we actually deployed this thing, we, we discovered that, you know, hundreds of people were coming out. Mm-hmm. And it was like full concerts. And they weren't walking their dogs and mm-hmm. playing and just walking by. They were sitting and having a concert experience. Mm-hmm. And they were, like, silent during the concert time. I mean, like, mm-hmm. they were loving this music. And, and so awesome. The way I was I was pitching this to people, the idea was, you know, imagine that you're not a baseball fan. I, I happen to love baseball. And but imagine you're not a baseball fan. You've never been to a baseball game. And a couple of members of the Royals come to your street and just start playing catch on your street. And you watch that. Would you or would you not be more inclined to go to a baseball game after that? And so I, I think you would. And and that's the same idea with Mobile Music Box. It's like this is a way to connect with people in their community, awesome. like where they where they live instead of where we are. We're going to them with a few of our musicians. We're going to play for them. There's no tickets. There's no – we're not even taking names. It's like just show up and listen. 
And hopefully that opens a relationship. And we've already seen that it's working. Mm, so That's amazing. It's, it's been terrific. It was born of the pandemic, out mm. of the urgency around the pandemic, but it's really a, a sort of a permanent mm. uh, thing. We just produced a, a little documentary video about it because mm. we're, we're really proud of it. And, uh, and, and so it's, it's, it's going to be a permanent part of the landscape of Kansas City. That's beautiful. How, how far along on the 145 zip codes is the... <laughs> oh, we're, we're pretty far. It's, it's, it's some, some of those zip codes are industrial. Okay. So we can skip those. <laughs> <laughs> you know, pe- yeah, people yeah. don't live in industrial zones. We, yeah. we want to go where they live. Um, yeah. We also go where they work sometimes. But, yeah. um, but most of the zip codes, I, I would say, I think we're probably 70% of the way there. That's awesome. You know, it, it, it takes a lot. We've given, jeez, so, how many concerts have we given? We've given probably three or 400 concerts now mm-hmm. on the mobile music box. Jeez. Um, but we're also making repeat visits to people, yeah. you know, places that are really receptive to us. It's all by invitation. You mm-hmm. know, we, we reached out to mm-hmm. communities, to civic leaders, to elected officials, and we said, hey, we have this thing. We'd love to come, but we're just not going to insert ourselves. We, we'd like to be, you know, invited because we need audience to be built and we need to be brought into a community, not just imposing ourselves on a community. And so that happened. And so we, we have tons and tons of different organizations and people that have asked us to come to their community, to their street, whatever it is. And it's been really moving, Mm -hmm. uh, to, to see these, to see these, uh, to see the response. Uh, we, we went, uh, we went to a place east of, east of Truist Avenue, Mm -hmm. you know, to, you know, not, not the typical symphony orchestra audience Mm -hmm. And, and, it's it's not you know we we talk about the need for diversity in our audience the need for diversity on stage we went to this community and this fellow came up to me and he he almost like had tears in his eyes and he said danny thank you for coming out to us you know we can't even get plumbers to come service our homes you know they, they're mm. afraid of this neighborhood and you the symphony came out to us mm. and, and we just want you to know you know number one we're fans number two this means so much to us it's like it sh- it shouldn't be that way. Yeah. Like we're 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 a we're a civic asset. Like we belong to everybody. We don't belong to the the rich, the white. I mean, we belong to everyone, you know. And and so everybody should feel like we're their symphony orchestra too. Maybe not everybody's going to be inclined to listen to a symphony orchestra, but but anybody who wants us should should be feel like they can access us. I love that, man. I I've, deep resonance with what you are ex- expressing and describing and even the the, the 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 your energy in this moment is really profound and beautiful um and it and it instantly made me connect to language that you all use on your website orchestra for all and it's a manifestation that that exact story is a manifestation of of what that looks like what that feels like who 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 that gets to um impact and serve and and it is the question of like man how do we um as a community do that broader than a marketing company or broader than the symphony or broader than a building or broader than um and it's just it's it's wonderful to hear leaders like you um tell stories like that so thank you um and and the other thing that strikes me is like what what once was like this audacious, ridiculous idea. There's no way we can go to 150 zip codes. That is bonkers, right? Yeah. It is now, um, it has to be operated. It has to be process driven. It has to have like guide rails and foundations, but it, it started with a dream and an idea and a concept and a spark of some um, 
possibility. And, and I, I just think that's super cool. Um, shifting gears just a touch, I'd love for you to also, you had another monumental shift in COVID, which was like you're moving physical locations, your staff, your, um, I, I've walked through the halls a couple times now, but I'd love for you to talk about the Webster house and, and what, how that came to be and what it is and now how it's going to be your, your new home for the, the team. I, I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about that. Yeah. So I, I will say we were fairly opportunistic during the pandemic and, and mobile music box was, is really something that was born of the pandemic, but is something that, that was needed. You know, we didn't realize it was needed before, but but now the, the, the potential of that is huge. And, and so too was, was our move over to the Webster School Building. And so Webster House was run as an antique store and restaurant yeah, for a long yeah. time. Uh, Shirley Bush Hellsberg, the, the proprietor of that, uh, also our landlord in, mm-hmm. in, the, in the Crossroads District, she owns quite a lot of real estate down there. And she's just a, a lovely human being and a big, big lover of what we, what we do and one of our biggest supporters. If, well, I, I must say our biggest supporter, really. <laughs> uh, she, she is our champion. And, and so um, she was running the restaurant. The restaurant closed, of course, because of, uh, you know, closed down due to COVID. And uh, I, when I got here, you know, I saw a major symphony orchestra where our musicians were coming and living in apartments. These are, you know, generally younger people. You know, they a, a lot of our musicians came from the New World Symphony, which is a sort of a training okay. orchestra down okay. in Miami. Uh, and so they go through like grad school and then they might win, win a job and uh, mm. win a position in the new world symphony. And then they take auditions and they go and get their, get their orchestra job. And so we were attracting a lot of those, a lot of those younger musicians. So they moved to Kansas city, they rent an apartment uh, and then they practice their tuba wear. And so, you know, we, we have musicians when, when I was, when I was taking auditions and teaching, you know, we were living in an apartment in uh, outside of Washington, DC. And I was practicing six hours a day. Jeez. I was practicing six hours a day in my apartment. Oh. And thank goodness I had really, really good and understanding neighbors, <laughs> most of whom worked during the day and weren't home. So I, I could I could do this, but um, but it was really uh, difficult um, to, to play a trombone in a tiny little apartment. And so that's always stuck with me. And so I had thought about, you know, our musicians need permanent rehearsal space mm. when we're at the Kaufman center, mm. you know, we, we have a day rate over there. So we, we, we lease the Kaufman center per day, uh, when we're in Hellsburg hall. Um, but our musicians don't have access to it when we're not in the building. And so generally speaking, and so, uh, we needed someplace permanent. So I, I really wanted to get some facility that would be bigger than just administrative offices. You know, the administration needs space. Yes, but yep. our musicians need space too. Yep. So that was number one. And number two, there was, there was always an opportunity for engagement. Mm. You know, we, we're not like an art museum. We're not like going to Nelson where you can just pop over whenever you're, you know, you have some free time. You know, you have to come on our schedule. You have to come on our terms. You know, we're performing at 8 o'clock yep. on Friday. Yep. You know, you can come if you want to. We're not performing at 9 a.m. on Monday. That's right. And, and so I would love to have some sort of, like, opportunity for the public to engage with us on their terms mm. uh, also. Awesome. And so all of these different needs uh, were, were present. And I, I spoke with, uh, with Shirley about the idea of, of Webster, Webster House, because as a restaurant, it, it wasn't working out. She decided to close it um, because of COVID. It, a lot of restaurants made that decision yeah. uh, because it was such a difficult time for them. Uh, and, and so her decision to, to close down that you know, beloved space, 
I, I seized on the opportunity, <laughs> I, I will admit. And, 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 and we talked about the idea of the symphony moving into that building. Um, and now this was more than double the square footage that we had over the, uh, the Vitagraph building, which is Caddy Corner and the Crossroads. Um, but this would give us opportunity for all of these things to coexist. Not the least of which is the opportunity for food and beverage, because there's no better way to engage people than with food and beverage. Right. And That's so right. uh, the commercial kitchen and the bar facilities were really appealing to me. So we built out a building, um, and, and that building has, has it's an administrative office. Probably 40% of it is administrative office. Uh, another portion of it is for the musicians. We have practice rooms now that they can go. They don't have awesome. to practice in their, in their apartments. And, um, and then uh, there's a space for the public. And so we're, we're envisioning what that could actually mean. What does it mean for a symphony orchestra to have public space that's not just performance space? And we have that too. We have performance space. But how can we engage with people in a way that's meaningful to them when we don't have musicians on stage? And so we're, we're envisioning that, that right now. That's so it's, cool. it's really exciting. That's super cool. And I'm assuming the, again, back to kind of the internal posture of it all, I'm assuming your staff and your musicians have loved it. Or again, I know it's, it's quite literally still being built out, but what's the reception been internally? Oh, it's been really good. Uh, it's, it's interesting. We were in a, a pretty perfect administrative space before, you know, the sort of the private offices around the perimeter and big bullpen and everybody's sort of right there together. That was a dream. Um, now we're, you know, each department is in a separate classroom, as it yeah. were, and, yeah. and we've divided those classrooms up with these modular walls, which is how you and I came to, yeah. to meet each other. And, and, and so it's not quite as optimal from an administrative standpoint. But now we have all this other function. And so the musicians have been, we've had a number of ensembles in there rehearsing, and now they actually have a place to do it. We're outfitting the place with pianos, which musicians really need pianos, even not piano players, but just to have a have an instrument available to you is really helpful to your practice. And and so there's all this potential now. And, and so it's been received very well internally, and I think externally, once we finally get the place finished, uh, we will we'll, it'll be well received there too. That's awesome. I have two final questions. I, I, I have a thousand that I want to ask, but in the, in the interest of your time, <laughs> I'll ask two. Um, the first is, and it's impossible to predict, right? But as the chief executive of a thriving, healthy, awesome, respected, deeply connected uh, organization in the, in the city, a civic asset, as you called it, um, the horizon pick a pick. Pick one, five years, 10 years. Um, what's the horizon like for, what, what, what do you see as, um, however you want to answer it, opportunities, threats, um, the ways that you can grow impact, grow revenue, grow opportunity, create more mobile music box ideas, right? Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a jumbled question, but from, from a vision standpoint, what and you you know are a visionary and, and a and a chief fixer <laughs> it seems <laughs> um what are some big problems or big things that you are going to focus on these next five years you know it's interesting the five-year horizon is is especially interesting because that is that is what we're looking at and we're in a situation now where you know the audience that we have for classical music has always been on the older side of mm -hmm. things though kansas city's audience is actually surprisingly you, know, you, you see a lot of young folks in the audience uh, for classical music. When we do things like film with orchestra, mm -hmm. we'll play a Star Wars, you know, the actual film Return of the Jedi, and the orchestra will play the soundtrack to the film. It's so cool. You have to awesome. see it. But 
Um, for for those who get a really really wide audience, let's yeah. like you know going to a, you know a Chiefs game or something. I mean, it's yeah. like everybody under the sun comes to yeah. those. But for classical music, which we perform more than anything else, it's uh, it, it it tends to skew older. And so for me, it's that generational shift that's happening. And we're going from people, and when I say older, I mean silent generation. You know, people in their seventies and eighties. We're going from people that grew up with symphonic music as part of their lives. You know, they, they, they watched it, you know, they might've heard it on the radio or seen it on TV or it was engaged, you know, really part of the community. It was just, you know, you watch a movie and it has this really rich soundtrack to it. Um, it, it's just part of, part of who they are. They had it in school. And now we're going to like my generation, gen, our generation, Gen X. Well, are you yeah, 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 yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. going to the younger generations, we don't, we didn't have all of that. We, we grew up at a different time. And, and so symphony orchestras have to be sought out more than they're just sort of available by osmosis. And so because of that, it's much more difficult to generate new audience to replace that audience is going to be aging out uh, of our concerts. And so for me, it the vision for the symphony is really a radical expansion of the symphony orchestra audience. It means serving not, a, you know, not 20% more people, but, you know, triple the number of people. Like that, that's what we're aspiring to. And, and we need to expand our audience really robustly uh, in, in these next few years. Um, and, and so that means a lot of, a lot of things. I, I think first and foremost, it's how we communicate about music. We're really, really good about performing music, but orchestras generally aren't very good about communicating about it. Um, they tend to talk to people as if they're sort of already in the fold. And the fact is that most, most, most of the public... Yeah don't know the, what the music yep. is. They don't know who these composers are. Mm. Should they even care? You know, they just want to hear good music. Um, but, but they don't even know what we do. And maybe even deeper than that, they want to, they want to have a good experience. They want to be, they want to feel connected. They want to feel yeah. understood. They, yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So it, it's, it's really, I, I, I think we're in virgin territory here mm. in terms of trying to, to, to blaze a trail mm. of, of, of how we communicate about music, how we, how we do persuasive communication, how we market, you know, orchestras don't really, don't really market, you know, mm. they don't create demand for the product. They just sell to existing demand. Mm. Like how do we actually create new demand? And, and so these are the things where I think we're going to be, you know, thought leaders. We're, we're probably going to take some wrong turns and make some mistakes along the way, but that's what innovation is. And, and that's where I see us going. That's wonderful. I love that answer. Thanks for sharing. Number two, before we hit hit you with the final five, <laughs> um, the and and maybe again it's it's early potentially. Um, I don't know. I'll just ask it. What's the most meaningful like executive director title aside, um, and concert night aside? What's the most meaningful part of your job? Boy. <laughs> that that's actually really easy to answer because it's why I'm in this field. It's it's why that calling that I felt earlier on in Charleston, you know, I I, I heard this music. I developed a love for it pretty late in life, um, relative to others, and, and and it just struck me as like, you know, where the hell has this been in my life? Like, why isn't this part of my life? Like, I went I went 21 years before I heard like real big music. As like. Oh my gosh. It, it, it's just a physical, like, I think it manif manifests itself in many ways, but it's hard to, it's hard to describe, but there's actually like physical change that happens in your body. There's been studies about that. Like 
you need to hear this. You need to be present in live orchestral music. Mm-hmm. And, and generally that to me, that means, you know, something early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so the most meaningful thing for me is to bring somebody who's maybe my age or even older and has never had that opportunity to hear a live symphony orchestra before in a proper hall playing proper, you know, mm-hmm. proper, you know, symphonic <laughs> music, like music that's been written just for this, just for this ensemble. And so for me, generally, I'll lean towards something in the sort of early 1900s, uh, you know, early 20th century, because to me, that's when the symphony orchestra really found its stride. And, uh, and, and it's, uh, it's just so overwhelmingly powerful. And so I'll bring somebody to a concert for the first time, and I'll look over while they're watching this concert, and I'll see the emotions going through their face. And it's like reliving that for me all over again. Because I remember what it was like to hear that for the first time, to have that live experience, not on a record player or a stereo, but to have that experience. And it's, 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 it's indescribable. And, and so I, I look at them and I, I, I live through them vicariously. It's like reliving that moment all over again. And so I want to do that a lot more. And I don't just want to do that myself. I want to have other people do that too and have that experience. And uh, it, it's, to, to me, that, that's why I'm in this business, develop an audience for this amazing art that's beautiful so beautiful and so well said the this this the word i scribbled down here as you were talking was full body alignment where um there's that's a concept right but in in when when you know like you actually feel that you're doing what you should be doing and supposed Mm -hmm. to be doing and and call to your to use your language which i love um to to be doing what you've been called to do and to step into that um full body alignment, full body agreement, right? Like it's just uh, such, such a beautiful description. Thank you so much for sharing that. Mm. Um, okay. Well, I hate to do this. But we have to, um, we got to w- wind it down. So, um, final five questions. First thing that comes to your mind, no right or wrong answers. Um, <laughs> only yours, only your answers. Uh, last book or, or a memorable book. Maybe you, you, you dropped the Jim Collins bomb already. So we have to find another one. Yeah, yeah I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll skip the business books, but Jim, Jim Collins, I'm a big fan of good to great, of course. Yep, but, yep. um, but I, I really enjoy reading about colonial history, mm. um, because these people came over from, from England or, you know, maybe the first generation that was born here. Uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson is one that I like to follow mostly cause I grew up mm. around it. You know, I, you know, George Washington got his haircut here or whatever. Well, you know, it was like, I, I like, I just had that experience every day. And so I've really enjoyed reading about the founding fathers. Uh, No, they weren't perfect. And, you know, it was a different time and slavery was, you know, happening and they, they built their success on the backs of others. However, they were also in a position where they had to reinvent something and, and, and they basically came over and said, this is what a democracy can look like. And to me, that's like, Oh my goodness! If they could accomplish that, I can certainly fix the symphony orchestra thing. So, uh, to me, it's inspiring, and I enjoy reading about it. That's great. I love that. Um, I can't actually imagine you in a t-shirt because I, I haven't pictured you in anything <laughs> other than like suit and tie, um, and and very proper and professional. Um, but if you do have a favorite t-shirt, I'd love to hear it. Boy, I, you know, I've never worn t-shirts. It's as a, as a kid, I was wearing golf shirts, you know, yep. like polo shirts or whatever. And, and I've ne- just never been a t-shirt guy, but I, I guess my favorite, you know, favorite shirt is whatever I happen to be wearing in the garden and, awesome. uh, you know, just getting dirty and, or, or in the wood shop and building furniture. And it's just that that's, that's me. That's awesome. I love it. Uh, what would you do right now if you weren't afraid? 
boy. Oh, if if I you know I I don't think I don't think I am very afraid, and mm. sometimes that comes and bites me. But mm. but I I do tend to to go for it, mm. and and I think what I'm doing right now is is what I'm doing because I'm not afraid. Mm. You know, I I think it'll work out, and um, and so I I I don't know. I I I I love building furniture. I think I would probably do more of that, but um, but for the symphony orchestra world and just radically advancing the audience, it would be much easier for me just to sort of incrementally sort of move things. Uh, I'm radically moving things mm. and it's very uncomfortable uh, for a lot of people, myself especially. Mm. Um, and, and I think that there is a certain amount of fearlessness that you have to have as a leader to, to actually succeed in, in particular areas. And this is one of them. Mm. I love that answer. That's amazing. Um, favorite place on earth is... Boy, I I, mm. I I am a Virginian, and I always will be, mm. and, and uh, so I, I love Virginia. Mm. I love the marsh, uh, the you know the, the Chesapeake Bay is just gorgeous. Uh, the mountains, uh, I mean, you kind of got it all right there. Um, for me, one of, one of my favorite places is Brevard, North Carolina, mm. just just south of Virginia, and just I mean the the abundance of waterfalls and of hiking of natural beauty there, uh, and it's also a community that happens to really love music, so. It's uh, it's it's a really pretty place. Love it. Last one. When it's all said and done, what do you want to be remembered for? I I want to be remembered for, you know, having the uh, <laughs> having the courage to do some of these things and actually actually affecting change. Um, there there is there is too much complacency in, in the world, and 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 I I would I would like to be successful in some of these things that I do. I know I'm going to stub my toe along the way. I already have, but. Um, but, but at the end, I'd like to come out and, and actually have made a positive change for the world in terms of what I'm doing with my life. It's awesome. And, and you are, which is wonderful to watch and witness and, and, uh, and cheer you on towards, which is super cool. Um, Danny, where can folks follow along? Obviously we'll link to the symphony website. Do you, do you want to plug any specific places they can follow your story? Yeah, I appreciate it. So also during COVID, we launched a video channel, which is available on pretty much any device with an internet connection, you know, a smart TV or a tablet or a toaster, even, mm. uh, look for the <laughs> Kansas city symphony in your app store and you'll see, a, mm. a, an app with, with video content. Mm. Uh, it's also available at mysymphonyseat.org, mm. uh, which is a, our video website. So I would encourage people to check check us out there, check us out on social media and kcsymphony.org. Connect with you on LinkedIn? Uh, yeah, please yeah. connect with yeah. me on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. So just, just do a search and you'll find me. Love it. Danny, yeah. thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure and thanks for the ways that you are uh, igniting change here in KC and beyond, my friend. Justin, it's been a pleasure. I look forward to working with you. Likewise, my friend. Thanks. As always, thank you for listening. Your attention is super valuable, so thank you for giving it to us. If you're a fan of the show, please go rate and review us wherever you're listening to this. I would really appreciate it. Until next time, when we get to share another great conversation with you, have a great week and let your life tell a meaningful story.